How are you doing this morning? Good. Slightly tired? Good? Awesome. <laughs> Good to hear. What's that? Hey, there you go. There you go. All right. Well, welcome again to Redeemer Church. Uh, I'm so happy that you guys are here. We're a little bit smaller of a crowd this morning, which is great. And uh, I pray that, uh, uh, well, now I can actually like see you so I can make sure that you're paying attention with a smaller crowd. It's easy for me to call you out if you fall asleep, Paul. Uh, But we're actually continuing today in our series through the book of Mark. And today we're actually going to be concluding our kind of mini-series within the book of Mark that we have called Holy Confrontations. Uh, And if you have been here over the past several weeks, you know that we've been going over these collection of five accounts where Jesus kind of comes to a head with the different religious leaders of Israel. And so we're going to be looking at the last two of these confrontations today. And in these confrontations that we're going to be looking at, Jesus reveals to those around him and he reveals to us that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. We'll be learning what exactly that means, but we do have quite a bit of ground to cover this morning, so we're just going to go ahead and jump right in, but first, let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, that your word this morning... God, your word that you describe as a double-edged sword, Lord, just pierces our hearts, pierces our consciences this morning. God, I pray that all of us, Lord, after hearing your word, leave here changed, molded, and conformed into your image. And Father, I pray that your spirit is our guide this morning, or that we're learning from you. And that you're hiding these things, God, that we talk about in our hearts. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right. Now, when I ask most people how their week has gone, it's funny that you've been talking a little bit about this, Jared, but when I, when I typically ask how their week has been going, the most common response that I get is, is either a quick, oh, you know, it's been good. It's been good, even if their week has actually been the furthest thing from good. Or, the other response that I get is just a one-word response. Busy. Busy. I get that one a lot. I give that one a lot, to be honest with you. Because between doctor's visits, between your child's sports practices or different activities that your kids are doing, or, or work, or grocery shopping... The list can, can keep going. Between all of these things, it seems like our, our schedules are just busier and busier, or getting busier and busier, right? At least I feel that way. I don't know if any of you guys feel that way, but I certainly do. And all of these different things that are going on in your life are vying for your time and attention. They're fighting for it. And it can get exhausting. It can get tiring. And now on top of that, on top of those things, John Calvin, who was a theologian from the 16th century, he said very wisely that our hearts are factories. Our hearts are factories. And the main product that they produce is idols. Our hearts can create and churn out idols on a daily basis. And these idols can look like, well, your phone. They can look like Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. These idols can look like pop culture, 
being more obsessed with the lives of other people that you will never meet than the lives of the people who are around you. And it can look like alcohol, it can look like drugs, it can look like your work, and it can even look like your relationships with other people. The number of idols that one can have is nearly infinite. And we are so attracted to these idols because because in them we see a shadow of a promise. Right? We see a shadow of a promise. The promise that if we just obtain that which we idolize, if we just give ourselves over more to the thing which we are idolizing, then our souls will find peace. Our souls will will find happiness. Even rest. But the sad truth is is that the more that we give ourselves over to our idols, the more exhausted we become. It's like beginning a race on a treadmill that you can't turn off. It doesn't matter how far you run. It doesn't matter how fast you run. You will never reach the end. You will just keep running and running and running and never be able to sit and rest for a moment. Now for the Pharisees, the idol that they pursued without rest was the law of God. They were relentless in their law keeping. Now this on the outset sounds sounds good and virtuous, doesn't it? It It sounds like a good thing. You want to follow the law of God, but for the Pharisees, it quickly turned idolatrous. You see, in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws that the Jewish people were required to keep. It's a lot of laws. But the rabbis and the Pharisees, however, decided that these laws, they needed a fence around them. And this fence, which is called the Mishnah, was constructed by additional laws and regulations that expounded upon the original 613. I think we kind of have a graphic here. So you have the law of God, sometimes called the law of Moses. And that is is what you find in the Old Testament. That's what you find in Scripture. Those are the, the commands, the laws that Israel were supposed to keep. But the Mishnah, this fence around it, were all of these extra things, extra commands that were not created by God, but created by man to to protect the law of God. That was the purpose there. Now, the intentions of the rabbis and the Pharisees was good. It was good, right? They wanted to protect the law. They desired to be as obedient to the laws of God as they possibly could, but but it soon became an idol, believing that their adherence to the Mishnah, to that fence they created in addition to the law of Moses, they believed that would save them. That the law itself would be what saved them, not God. And so they became obsessed with their own self-righteous and they their own self-righteousness and they tirelessly pursued these laws of which there were over a thousand. Now the perfect example of this fence, of this, of this Mishnah, is to take the Sabbath, the day of rest. Now before I explain the fence that the Pharisees and the rabbis constructed around the Sabbath, let's, let's first see what the Bible has to say about it and what its purpose is first. And then we can kind of understand the seriousness of this fence that they put around it. Now there may be some misconception as to where the roots of the, of the Sabbath actually begin. 
Some believe that it was instituted at Mount Sinai when God communicated His law to Moses. And in the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses in Exodus 20, God says to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Right? Most, most of us kind of learn that at a young age, or at least have, have heard about it, maybe. But a lot of people think that, okay, that, that is where Sabbath began. But in reality, the roots of the Sabbath run much deeper than that. Far deeper than that, actually, because just a couple verses further in Exodus 20, 11, God says that the Sabbath actually traces its roots way back to the very creation of the world. When in six days God created the heavens and the earth, when He created the plants and animals, and then when He finally created the pinnacle of His creation, human beings, mankind, that was created in His image. And after those six days of immense and amazing creativity were complete, Genesis 1 tells us that God rested from His work. He rested, took a break. Now what is very interesting about this creation account is that when each of these six days of creation were finished, we are told that there was evening and that there was morning. And then the next day of creation began. But when you get to the seventh day, when you get to the day of rest, we're not told that that day ended. It doesn't say there was, there was morning and there was evening, or there was evening and then there was morning. That's not there. What it does say is that He blessed it and made it holy. Now what all of this means is that when God finished creating Adam and Eve, they joined Him. They joined Him in an ongoing and blissful rest. That's what that means. They did not have to work for their food. The earth naturally provided what all of God's creatures needed. The one job that they were given to name all of the animals and subdue the earth, it came easily and naturally to them. It wasn't burdensome even in the slightest. But the most beautiful, the most wonderful aspect of this time in the Garden of Eden was the unimpeded relationship between man and God. They were able to enjoy a, a full relationship with Him, completely unconstrained by sin. And this period in the garden was what true rest looks like. Full, unhindered relationship with God, walking alongside Him in perfect harmony. That's true rest. And they experienced it there in the garden. But all of that changed at the fall. That changed when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree that God forbade them to eat from. And because of their sin, that, that prolonged day of rest that they enjoyed with the Lord, it came to a sudden and abrupt halt. What once was easy and fulfilling, subduing the earth, became, became difficult and wearing. Man was forced to work as slaves to the land and fight against it to bring forth what they needed to survive. It was brutal. Human bodies became weak with exhaustion and disease and old age eventually giving way to death. Relationship between human beings became harder to manage with sin becoming a core characteristic of what it means to be human. And worst of all, because of that sin, a chasm opened up between mankind and God. 
And that day of rest was no more. But out of God's tender mercies, following the pattern of creation, He ordained that every seventh day that Israel was to stop their work and rest, and in Hebrew, to Shabbat, which is where our word Sabbath actually comes from. And this Shabbat, or rest, would be from sundown Friday to sundown on Saturday. And some believe Israel was already observing the Sabbath before it was ever given to Moses first on Mount Sinai. But regardless, God had three wonderful purposes for the Sabbath, for for the Shabbat. Now the first is that it allowed Israel to give rest to their bodies. After working for six days, the Sabbath was meant to give them a day to recuperate, to to regain their strength. And not only that, but even their livestock was meant to rest, giving even the animals time to recuperate from the difficulties of subduing the land. Now the second purpose was to be a picture. The second purpose was to be a reminder of that seventh day of rest that Adam and Eve enjoyed together with God in the garden. To remind them that this world full of sin and full of pain and full of suffering is is not the way that it's meant to be. And then finally, the Sabbath day was meant to be a foretaste. A foretaste of the final and greater rest they were to experience when the Messiah came. They were meant to stop their work for for just one day. Just one day and live as if they were in that final and wonderful rest when they would be free from their physical and spiritual oppression, free from the corruption of sin that has been infecting uh, creation. Now while all this is well and good, the rabbis and the Pharisees had, they kind of had somewhat of a problem. You could probably say it's a kind of a self-made problem. You see, the law given in Exodus and Leviticus and also kind of reiterated in Deuteronomy about the Sabbath is it's somewhat vague. There's not a whole lot of detail that goes into to say what actually constitutes as work. And so the rabbis and then eventually the Pharisees throughout the generations, they took it upon themselves to construct the fence around the Sabbath by declaring themselves what constituted as work on the Sabbath. So they they took it upon themselves to say what is allowed or what is prohibited on the Lord's day. And like all of their rules and regulations, the Pharisees followed their laws to a legalistic T and named those who didn't as sinners, as Sabbath breakers. And soon the laws that were meant to only protect the law of Sabbath became elevated to the same importance of Sabbath itself. And friends, that is idolatry. That is legalism. Now, all that being said, all of that is, is somewhat of just a bit of context for our passage today, and I know that was quite a, a long introduction to our passage, but it will help us understand the significance of these confrontations that we are about to read about with Jesus and the Pharisees. So read with me, if you will, Mark 2, 23 through 24. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now Jesus and his disciples, they made probably, or they made possibly, two mistakes in the eyes of the Pharisees. Now the first mistake that they might have made was actually traveling too far on the Sabbath. You see, the Jewish people on the Sabbath were only allowed to travel as far as what is called a Sabbath day journey, which is exactly 100 and, or sorry, 1,999 steps. That's it. One, one step over, you become a Sabbath breaker. You become a sinner. So that 2,000th that step is rough. You better save it for the bathroom. So that's one possible mistake that they made. However, the primary concern of the Pharisees in this situation was that Jesus allowed his disciples to pluck the grain in a field that they were passing by. Now, technically, this was allowed. They weren't upset that that the disciples were, were stealing or anything like that, but according to the Old Testament, farmers were not allowed to harvest the edges of their fields so that those in need and travelers would be able to, to eat something. They would be able to fill their bellies. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a sin for them to take from this, uh, from this field. But the problem was that according to the Mishnah, their sacred fence of protecting, any sort of harvesting on the Sabbath was prohibited. And to the Pharisees, using your hand to pluck grain to feed yourself counted as a type of harvesting. And so the Pharisees said, Aha! Jesus, your disciples are Sabbath breakers. Like, why, why are you allowing them to do this? Do you, do you see what's going on? They're plucking, and they're feeding themselves. But you've got, you've got to love the way that uh, I said plucking really strange. I don't know if that made you laugh, but it made me laugh in my head. But uh, you've got to love the way that Jesus responded to these Pharisees. He said, have you not read? Have you not read? What a funny insult to these men, because you have to understand that these men were Pharisees. They prided themselves in knowing the Old Testament forward and backward. And Jesus saying, have you guys not read the Old Testament? Have you guys not read the story of David? What a funny insult, I think. It was pretty daring of him to say that to them. But Jesus' response here is actually very important because to answer this accusation from these religious authorities, Jesus does not point to the teaching of a rabbi and he doesn't uh, point to the teaching of a Pharisee. He doesn't point to the Mishnah at all. But what's he point to? He points to Scripture, specifically 1 Samuel. And he references David eating the bread of presence. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that story. When David was a fugitive from King Saul, and this was before David himself became king, David gathered around himself a band of men that were loyal to him. But because they were fugitives, because they were out on the run, they didn't have any shelter, and they of course didn't have any food. And David began to 
uh, start becoming concerned for his men. And because there was no food anywhere else, he ventured into the tabernacle, this, this holy place, and took for his men to eat the twelve loaves of the bread of presence. Now this was, this was enough bread to provide nourishment to his men who, who were in desperate need, who were about to faint from weariness and exhaustion. Now the twelve loaves were meant to represent the twelve tribes of Israel and God's covenant with them. And the only ones, the only ones who were permitted to eat these uh, loaves of bread were the priests, the mediators between Israel and God. Only them, no one else. Now Jesus uses David here because in the minds of the Pharisees, David was the great hero of Israel's golden age. So this was purposeful. And Jesus, Jesus' main point here is simple. He's saying that while it is not normal or lawful for David to have eaten the bread of presence, it was even more the case that God did not want David and his men to starve. God was more concerned with caring for his servant David than he was about religious practices. And we know this because nowhere in Scripture do we see a condemnation of David's actions. And even more so, we see Jesus using him as an example. And biblical scholar, a guy named Edward Earle, he states rightly that Jesus is teaching them here that human need is a far higher law than their legalistic religious ritualism. And soon after this, Jesus gets to the crux of the matter and continues his response to the Pharisees in verse 27 by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, Jesus is leveling criticism at the rabbinic tradition, those excess laws that had been added as offense around the good law of the Sabbath. Such laws as you cannot untie a knot on the Sabbath. Better hope that your sandals aren't in a bind or in a knot or in a mess, because you can't untie them. Other laws, such as if you rip a hole in your tunic, you can, you can feel free to stitch it up. You can feel free to, to hem it up, but you can only use one stitch. Two stitches, man, entering into sin territory there. And most significantly, most significantly, you could not give aid to anyone unless it is a situation in which their life is in danger. So if someone broke their arm, you could not help them put it in a splint. If their arm was pulled out of socket, it would, have to be, it would have to wait until sundown on Saturday to be put back in the socket. Anyone crying out in agony must be left unless their life was at stake. But to be honest with you, we, we, we really shouldn't be too shocked to hear about these excess laws. We really, we really shouldn't, because Christians do it all the time. All the time. Christians will create rules for Christianity that are nowhere to be found within the Word of God. And they will use those rules as a litmus test for what they would claim as true Christianity, despite a complete lack of biblical foundation. It happens all the time. Some say you can't dance. 
well, for me, that should be a law. Some say you can't use instruments in worship. Some say you can't go to a bar. Some say that you can't get a tattoo. Some say you can't listen to a certain kind of music. And the list goes on and on and on. But friends, all this does, all this rulemaking does is create a ball and chain that they lock on to the feet of Christians and non-Christians who are reaching out to Christ. And the weight of those legalistic rules keeps them away from truly embracing the Savior and the freedom that is found in Him. And church, let that not be so of Redeemer. Let that not be so. We want to be a church that follows the commands of Jesus. We want to be a church that seeks after holiness and righteousness, leaving our sinful ways behind. That is absolutely true, and that is a foundation of what it means to be a Christian. But we must seek to do that God's way. God's way. Not our own, which is idolatrous legalism lifting our own rules to the level of God's Word. Let that not be true here. So Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, and the, He's saying that in the pursuit of your legalistic rules, you're completely, or you have completely, forgotten the purpose of the Sabbath day. You've forgotten it. It was meant to be a gift. It was meant to serve you to allow you to rest, to allow you one day in the week to taste what it will be like to be in the presence of your Messiah. But you rabbis and Pharisees have turned the Sabbath into a burden. And Jesus finishes his reply by, by dropping somewhat of a bombshell. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. What is Jesus saying here? Well, you see, we are told all throughout the New Testament, most directly in Colossians 1.16, that by Him, and Him meaning Jesus, that by Him and through Him, all things were created. So when you are reading the events of Genesis 1, friends, you are reading about Jesus Himself. You are reading that Jesus is the one forming the universe out of nothing, bringing time, space, and matter into existence with just His mighty power alone. And it was Jesus who rested on that seventh day. And it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who delivered the law to Moses that contained the law of the Sabbath. All of that was Jesus. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying that I made the Sabbath and I alone am sovereign over it. Me. And I meant it as a gift to mankind. And it is my divine prerogative to declare what is and is not permitted to do on this day. Don't look at your rabbis. Don't look at yourselves for what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Look to me. None of you have that authority. That authority resides in the Son of Man. One commentary I read on this passage points out, <laughs> points out the patience that Jesus had. And how astounding it was. 
And I, I completely agree. The, the patience of Jesus here is amazing. For the very creator of the Sabbath to be questioned about his conduct on the Sabbath by these men. Can you imagine? As we talked about at the beginning of Mark 2, in the first confrontation Jesus had with the Pharisees, it is one thing, it's one thing, for Jesus to declare something. But it's something else altogether for him to prove it with action. And so not only does Jesus declare himself Lord over the Sabbath, which of course is another declaration of Jesus' deity, but he displays it for all to see. Let's take a look at the last of these five confrontations Jesus has with the Pharisees. Read with me Mark 3, 1 through 5. He says, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. Now, remember this man with the withered hand's life was not in peril. So according to their rules, it would be Sabbath-breaking for Jesus to heal this man. And so that kinda, it kind of sounds like a little plot to me, doesn't it to you? Maybe they, they brought in this man's conjecture, but maybe they brought in this man to see if Jesus would do what Jesus loves to do, which is healing people. But Jesus said, he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Again, Jesus, by asking, is it lawful to do good, is putting forth his driving principle for the Sabbath. His driving principle. This healing is a good thing. And friends, it pleases the creator of the Sabbath that things such as this, as, such as this healing uh, and helping those who are hurting and who are in need does not just happen six days a week, but all seven days of the week, including Sabbath. Bible commentator Daniel Aiken makes a profound observation here. And he concludes that what Jesus is promoting... What he is saying is good and lawful to do on the Sabbath are those things that promote life. To help those in need. To heal. To provide food for the hungry. To, to rest from a week of work. All of those things are good and to be done on the Sabbath. But what the Pharisees were putting forth as lawful on the Sabbath are those things that promote death. A strict adherence to unbiblical laws that lead away from God. To turn your back on the needy and the hurting, all because of your religious structures. And then finally, as we see in verse 6, they plot to destroy, to kill Jesus with the Herodians. 
The Herodians were Jewish people who supported the, the Roman vassal of Herod. But Jesus knew, as we learned before, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew of the hatred for him that was broiling up inside of them, enough to drive them to begin scheming his demise. And that, that was the most heinous violation of the Sabbath in the history of the world. Plotting on the Sabbath to murder the Lord of the Sabbath. Now notice in verse 5, what Mark tells us of the emotions of Jesus. It says first that he was angry. And the Greek word used for that word anger is not, is not the typical type of anger that we might think of in terms of Jesus. Because when we think of Jesus, we think of the Americanized version of Jesus, meek and mild. But it is not the anger of, of just a mere annoyance. It's not even righteous indignation. It is the word orye. It is the word for fury. It is the word associated with divine wrath. He is furious with these religious hypocrites who are more concerned with keeping their customs than they are with the well-being of their fellow man. He is outraged that they care more about trapping Jesus than they are about this poor man who needs healing. He is enraged at the twisted thing that they have made of the Sabbath. But then that fury is combined, as Mark tells us, with grief. He is pained by the hardness of their hearts. To see these men who were made in His image to be so blinded by their sin. So much so that they would be willing to, to use this poor man. To use this man with a withered hand in their schemes to kill the Son of God. It broke his heart. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we act in a manner that mirrors these Pharisees, when we become more concerned with our self-imposed religious rules, more so than our desire to help those in need around us, we grieve the heart of God. And when we read stories such as these, when we read of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, let us not read it and say, I am so thankful I am not like them. Let us not read it with that kind of heart, because more often than not, we are like them. We are still sinners. We're still wrestling with that sin. And so let us pray instead and ask the Father to show us where our hypocrisy lies. And to ask forgiveness. And ask for help to turn away from those things. And then friends, let us fall on our knees. Because if you are in Christ, then His wrath his fury pass over you and on to Christ. Fall on your knees in thankfulness that Jesus bore that fury, that, that orye on our behalf. And for those who, who are not in Christ, who have not placed their trust in the Lord of the Sabbath, then, then I pray that this serves as a, as a harsh but, but loving 
warning to you. And I pray that you hear me with grace. Because every breath that you take, every, every beat of your heart is a mercy from God. But there is coming a day. There is coming a day for those who are not in Christ when the mercies of God stop and His wrath begins. And so I pray that you do not harden your hearts when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you trust in Him and turn away from your rebellion against Him. And that actually brings me to my conclusion and actually back around to the purpose of the Sabbath. You see, in His sovereignty, Jesus planned His death to take place on a Friday meaning that his body rested in the tomb on Sabbath. But then he rose again on Sunday, which is the first day of a brand new week. So in connection to the creation account in Genesis, his resurrection was meant to mark the beginnings of a new creation, of a brand new creation with a new heaven and a new earth that will be completed when Jesus comes again. And friends, on that day of Jesus' return, Hebrews 4.9 tells us that He will be ushering in the final, the perfect, and everlasting Sabbath that all those who are in Christ, who are themselves a new creation, will be able to experience. Rest for our world-weary souls. Rest from our sins. Rest from our addictions, from our idols. Rest from our grief and from our pain. And like my son rests in my arms when he's tired, we will be able to rest in the arms of Jesus. Praise God. What a Savior. And church, this is why we still observe the Sabbath today. It was designed for us. Each Sabbath is a day for us to, to rest for just a moment. Just, just one moment and to see just a glimpse of what is to come. And so Christian, don't overlook it. Don't overlook this day. It is a glorious day where we can, just, we can brush up against the glory of the greater Sabbath where we can rest from the weariness of the world and its empty promises. And this is why historically, Christians have observed the Sabbath on Sundays and choose this day to hold our worship services. Because not only, friends, not only is today a day to rest in our Savior and to remind ourselves of the greater rest that is to come, but did you know, did you know that when we come here together, when we sing praises to God and hear His words, we are actually acting out the very activities that we are going to be doing in that final, in that greater Sabbath. We are acting it out. We will be singing His praises with joyful and full hearts as we sit at what Revelation 19 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we, the church... We, His bride, are united with Him in Sabbath rest forever. This, this here and now, 
is another merciful foretaste. It's another gift from God. And so, Christian, I urge you to not overlook this amazing day. And if there are times that you have to go to work on Sundays, if it happens, I know, then I urge you to find another day during that week where you can take a Sabbath. Focus your mind and hearts on Christ. But not out of some tiresome legalistic obligation like the Pharisees who suffocated the life out of this day due to their endless rules, but out of a joyful and thankful heart that the Lord has given this day to you as a gift for your physical and spiritual nourishment. Praise God. Now, this concludes our mini-series on Holy Confrontation. And there are so many more riches to, to gain from these passages. There's so much more gold to mine. So much more to, to learn about the character, about the, about the heart of Christ as He comes to a head with these religious leaders. So I encourage all of you to go back, to reread these passages, to study them, and pray that God hides them in your heart. Now I want to conclude this sermon, which will also serve as my prayer, my closing prayer, uh, with Jesus' words found in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 29. So pray this along with me. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus, let it be so. Amen.